The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you'll join me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. As you're turning there, I just wanted to say we can praise God that he has given us so many uh, young men who are eager to participate in the work of the ministry. And uh, we have many of uh, these guys who are taking seminary classes. And uh, uh, Nicholas, uh, he, I think, didn't have enough to do at law school, so was also taking seminary classes at the same time and decided to have a baby in the midst of all of that. So um, he's, he's pretty much done with, it, with uh, all of that. So we're very thankful and uh, praise God that he was able to uh, lead us in worship this evening. So we find ourselves Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this evening. <clears throat> now if someone asked you to think of a great leader, who would come to mind? And if you were asked to explain your reasoning as to why this person was a great leader, some of the specific characteristics and you had to point out certain things about this person. What would you say provided them with their leadership abilities? If you ever study history, you will come across numerous theories about why people become notable figures and leaders that are remembered in our history books. What, a, what, what was significant about Alexander the Great? Or what were the unique qualities of Abraham Lincoln? Who was Margaret Thatcher and how did she accomplish all that she did? There's one theory of history that's called the great man theory, which posits that great leaders are born and not made. In other words, the traits of a good leader cannot be learned. They are inherent to a person's makeup from their birth. According to this theory, great leaders rise to the occasion when they are most needed in order to be the foundation upon which history is built. Essentially, according to the great man theory, people in positions of power deserve to lead because of characteristics granted to them at birth, which ultimately helps them to become heroes. Well, this theory of history was popularized by a man by the name of Thomas Carlyle, and he believed that great men were sent to the earth by God to fulfill historically significant purposes. He explained that heroes fit into one of six categories, either a divine entity, a prophet, a poet, a priest, a man of letters, or a king. And Carlyle argued that studying great men was profitable for all of us to discover our own heroic side. Examining heroes' lives and greatnesses could help us to uncover aspects of our own character yet undiscovered. Well, there are certain aspects of this theory that I find compelling to a certain degree. However, when we look at the Bible, and we consider the people that God chose to use to lead his people in significant ways, what we find are often men and women who would be considered the least likely to become heroes, especially according to the great man theory. And as we continue looking at the book of Exodus, we come to the middle of this conversation we've been in between the angel of the Lord from a burning bush, God himself speaking to Moses. And you'll remember the, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in this burning bush and he tells him, come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And as we read, we get this sense uh, that, that panic is sort of setting in for Moses. Me? You want me to go? And, and so he asks several questions. And the first one we saw was, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then he asked, if I come, if I do this, if I go to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And from there, God explained exactly as it was to happen. Gather the elders, tell them, I am has sent you, and then you will go with the elders, you will meet with Pharaoh, and you will ask, 
if you can take a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship me. He will reject your request, and so I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike Egypt with many wonders, and eventually he will let you go. And then you will leave, and as you leave, you will plunder the Egyptians so you do not go away empty-handed. And this is where we ended last time. Now before we continue looking at this conversation, I want to think together about this man, Moses. He's 80 years old at this point. He's been long settled into his life in Midian for about 40 years. He's already shown his tendency to make rash decisions, even though his overall intent, we could say, was noble. But here, as he talks directly with Almighty God, we see something of his character. In fact, we see something about Moses that is very much like all of us. He's a sinner. And he wants to say, Lord, I know you're calling me to do this thing, but I have to be honest, it's really not my thing. And what is Moses doing? He's making excuses as to why this is not going to work, why this is a bad idea, why God is mistaken. I'm not the right man for the job. Lord, you need to choose someone else. I'm not your guy. But despite Moses' sinful attitude, and let's not downplay the reality of this, it truly is a sinful attitude that we see from Moses. But when God tells you to do something, you have an obligation and you have a responsibility to do it. Besides, the God of all creation, the omnipotent one, he is telling you, I will be with you. And this is how it's going to happen. So what good excuse could you really have for not following his call? And so yes, Moses was a great man in many ways. There's no doubt about that for many reasons. But he wasn't a born leader by any means. And he was the most unlikely of all leaders in many ways. But that's what God does, isn't it? It's just as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It seems that Moses wasn't a born leader. Moses was a God-appointed leader who went into his task with zero confidence. And we'll see that as we continue. So let's read together Exodus 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Well, once again, we see Moses challenging God's call on his life. This is the third of ultimately five objections that Moses raises. Now here in verse one, he says to God, they're not going to believe me. 
They're not going to listen to me. They'll say, Moses, you're a liar. The Lord, never appear, he never appeared to you. You're just here to get attention. And in a rational human sense, we can understand Moses' concern, can't we? If we give him the benefit of the doubt that, that maybe he'd be willing if he thought it plausible, still without evidence of any kind, there's no way they will believe him. That's entirely understandable and we can figure out why he would raise this concern. However, what we cannot forget is that God himself is the one sending him. If it was his father-in-law Jethro, for example, saying, Moses, you should go and do this thing, then his argument here would make perfect sense. But it's the Lord. And we have to remember that God has already told Moses, back in chapter three and verse 18, what does he say? They will listen to your voice. And so he already has an assurance that when he says, the Lord has sent me, that they will hear him, they will believe him. Moses is being stubbornly obstinate. And again, if we give him the benefit of the doubt, perhaps what he really wants is an assurance that God truly is going to be with him. But remember, God not only promised that the elders would believe Moses, but he also promised that they would make his testimony their own testimony. Perhaps you miss this as you read the text. It's very subtle, but look again in chapter three in verse 18. God told Moses that he, when he went to Pharaoh with the elders, they would say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with whom? Has met with us. He's met with us. Now he appeared to Moses, he met with Moses, but now they've made his testimony their testimony. So by asking what would happen if the elders refused to listen to him, Moses was flatly rejecting God's promise. And so we see our first point here in Moses' objection and God's response, and that is that we must believe the word of God. We must. It seems very simple. And, and Christians might hear this and say, of course we have to believe the word of God. And I hope you say that. But how often do we forget? How often do we raise our own objections to the call of God on our lives? Now maybe you don't think this includes you. Maybe you're thinking right now, Pastor Nick, I believe the word of God and by his grace I obey his commandments and praise God. Praise God that the Christian life is one of continual obedience that continues to increase as we are sanctified. But make sure you don't look at Moses like the Pharisee looked at the tax collector and say, thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you, Lord, that I obey you and I am not like Moses. Be careful. And we're gonna see this with the Israelites all throughout Exodus. And our constant temptation as we see it is going to be to say, these people, they're so ignorant. They're so slow to believe. They complain all the time. They don't trust the Lord, even though they're seeing all of these wonderful things happening all around them as God has provided. What is wrong with them? I will never be like the Israelites but don't think so highly of yourself. Don't be like Peter who told the Lord Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Knowing that in a time of weakness, in times of walking in the flesh, you will unfortunately at times disobey the Lord. Have you ever been tempted not to believe the word of God when God says that he saves sinners by his grace? Of course, you will affirm the doctrine. Justification by faith alone, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. But how about in practice? We can affirm all the doctrine we want, but how about in practice? Have you ever thought about talking to someone about Jesus and then you thought like Moses? What if they don't believe what I'm saying? What if they don't listen to me? And so, 
We can affirm that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, but when it comes time to have that conversation with someone, do we raise objections? Do we shrink back in fear that we might be made to look foolish ourselves? That they will reject us? That they will laugh at us? Whether we recognize it about ourselves or not, all of us exhibit something of Moses' character. We want to be liked by other people. We want to be accepted. And it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be rejected. And so we often take the easy road. We won't say hard things when we think it might cause us to be maligned or attacked or laughed at or rejected. But God calls on us, his people, his children, to keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and to leave the saving up to him. He has promised to save from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and he will. Don't you think guys like William Carey, for example, had times of doubt? William Carey was a missionary to India, and he worked there for seven years before he saw a single convert. And while he was there, he saw two of his daughters die as infants, One of his sons died at the age of five. His wife died after she had a severe mental breakdown. His second wife died 13 years later. William Carey had every reason to say, Lord, this is not what I signed up for. You have not come with me. But he stayed. Now, In the history books, oftentimes, a lot of criticism has been thrown at William Carey. Perhaps there are good things that maybe he could have done differently, but one thing he cannot be criticized on is that he believed the word of God. He did. Carey actually, he actually started out on his missionary journey as a paedo-baptist. But while he was on his way on a ship to India, he studied the scriptures and he became convinced of believer's baptism. And so he could have gotten there, he could have carried on and kept his mouth shut and nobody would have known any different if he just practiced believer's baptism as he now believed. It wasn't, wasn't like there were gonna be pictures of him baptizing people on Facebook. But, but he was a man of godly character. And so he informed the missionary society back in London that his doctrinal position has changed and as a result, they removed all of his funding as soon as he arrived in India. But Kerry pressed on. And by the end of his ministry, him and his associates had baptized 1,407 new Christians. He translated the Bible and various other works into Bengali and several other dialects. He worked on many social causes and as a result was able to save the lives of many Indian people. And eventually, Kerry would become known as the father of modern missions. And his approach to missions changed the way the Western Evangelical Church has thought about cross-cultural missions forever. It's an amazing legacy and it's all built upon his believing the word of God, despite the circumstances. He knew God would save people. Be it seven years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, he knew God would do what he said he would do, and so he remained faithful. Now there are many other stories of men and women who believe God even when the circumstances surrounding them would tell the natural man to abandon ship. There's no, there's no doubt that there are times when we are called to do something in obedience to God. It's scary. Maybe it's uncomfortable. It may even be dangerous. And no doubt, Moses' situation would be scary, uncomfortable, and dangerous. But when the Lord makes a promise, we need to ask for his spirit to help us to believe it and then live in such a way that we don't contradict it, but instead accept it as true and trustworthy. And even so, the Lord knows our makeup. The Lord knows our weaknesses. So let's not overlook a really important aspect of this conversation between the Lord and Moses. Notice how patient the Lord is with him. 
despite his opposition to the plan. The Lord continues to reason with him and to tell him why his excuses really will not stand. The Lord is with him every step of the way. And so right here, instead of rebuking Moses, which the Lord really has every reason to do, but he doesn't rebuke him. He gives him evidence to bring with him. Really, the Lord could have said, Moses, remember who you're talking to. Be like a father speaking to his son. (laughs) Remember who you're talking to. You're going to do what I tell you to do. But he doesn't do that. He wanted to give Moses confidence. He wanted to give him assurance. He wanted him to really know that he was going to be with him all along the way. But some of us have the same fears that Moses would have had. Some of us, maybe we have, even in our lives right now, a really deep sense that maybe we are all alone. We've considered this before, so I won't say much about it, but God shows us over and over and over again in these first four chapters that he is who he is, he will do what he says he will do, and he is always for his people. I am with you, God says, and I will not leave you. I will not depart from you. Do you believe that? This is the word of God. Do you believe that? When the darkness rolls in, when your heart grows cold, when you find it easier to sin, when your thoughts are straying from the truth, when you are tempted to be fearful and fleshly, when you think your circumstances are unique and nobody cares or nobody understands, do you remind yourself, God is with me. God loves me. God will not leave me. God will fulfill his promises. This, my circumstances right now, all that I'm going through, all that he's called me to do, this is all for his glory and for my good. Do you preach that to yourself? If not, you should. And indeed, dear Christian, you must. We have zero promises in scripture that this life will be easy or that we won't suffer or that we won't have really difficult seasons of life. And in fact, we have promises that are quite the opposite. And we do have, in the midst of it, this overwhelming promise that trumps all others. And we see it all through the scriptures. The Lord says, I am with you. Brothers and sisters, he is with us. And so write it down. Remind yourself of it every single day. Tattoo it on the back of your eyelids so you never forget it. If you are a child of God, he is with you. Your Abba Father is with you. And so we see how God is patient with Moses. And to give him even more confidence for the mission and assurances of his love and his purposes for Moses and the Israelites, he patiently continues to remove all of these excuses. And so God gives Moses three signs to help confirm that God has sent him. And so we see, secondly, that God is greater than any other God and any other man and has complete control over all creation. Now, in sports... Some of you sports fans, you'll get into these debates. Who is the GOAT? Who is the greatest of all time? Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Well, hands down, the easiest question I've ever had to answer in my life, of course, it's Michael Jordan. Is it Tiger Woods or is it Jack Nicholas? Controversial, I know. I think it's Jack Nicholas. Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson? That's a tough one. I think it's probably Mike Tyson. But when it comes to God, there is no one to even compare him with. There is no question, there is no dilemma, there is no debate. The answer is simple, not just for us, but for God himself. He does not leave the door open. He never leaves the door open to be called Krishna or Buddha or the great architect or the mother goddess of the earth. 
You don't come to an understanding of who God truly is by worshiping Zeus or Hermes or Osiris and you don't become godlike by making sure you've aligned your chakras or properly oriented your feng shui or mastered all of your yoga poses during your Monday morning class at the park. While a pluralistic culture wants us to believe that all ways of conceiving of God are valid, here in Exodus we see that God himself proves otherwise. There is only one goat and there always will be. And God gives Moses three signs as a a sort of preview for coming attractions of what he's going to do to show even further that there is none like him. Things we'll see over the next 11 chapters. And so here he turns a staff into a serpent. He makes Moses' hand uh, leprous and then he heals it. And then he promises that if he takes water from the Nile and pours it onto the dry ground, it will be turned to blood. It's God saying, Moses, if the elders don't believe you, now remember, they will, I've already told you they will, but if they don't believe you, let me give you a few unbelievable supernatural signs to show the elders so that they will know without a doubt that you were sent by me. But these are not only signs to convince the elders. After all, we've seen that they will believe, but they will be part of the signs that God uses to finally convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave Egypt. And all three of these signs serve to highlight God's sovereignty over all creation. And in this case, his sovereignty over Egypt. These signs were chosen for a reason. And this is a theme that we are going to see develop in time, especially when we get to the plagues on Egypt. But what is God showing the Egyptians? What is God showing us? Well, first and foremost, that he is more powerful and more capable than all the false gods of the world. We also have to take notice that in verses eight and nine, these are called signs And in verse 21, later, we'll see them called miracles, or in other translations, wonders. Miracles are wonders and signs. Now, these two words are often used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. The distinction between them isn't all that drastic, but there is a difference. A miracle or a a wonder is something that, we could say, stops people in their tracks. It makes them stop and stare. A sign is something that points beyond itself to something else. A a signpost that serves to identify something else of greater significance. So a wonder or a miracle is, is meant to catch our attention where a sign is meant to engage our minds. Another way we can say it is that a wonder astonishes while a sign instructs. Now, no doubt, a rod or a stick turning into a snake and back again, and a hand becoming leprous and then being healthy again, and water becoming blood on dry land, all of these are understandably called wonders or miracles, but they're also called signs, and so we have to ask, what are each of them pointing to that they would rightly be called signs? What are they instructing about? What truth do they illustrate or confirm for us? The Lord's signs are always meaningful illustrations. They're not just clever tricks. And even if the three signs here were primarily a way to authenticate Moses' claim to be sent by God, the likelihood is that they are also pointers to deeper truths. Since the Bible does not explain them in any depth, we can assume that that they would have had a plain meaning for those who saw them and we must do our best to understand them in the original context. Now, if you, if you do much study here and you read some old works that have been written on this, uh, some people in the past, well-meaning Christian men, have written very lengthy treatises on the meanings of all of these different signs and, in my opinion, often take it way too far. They read a lot of things into the text, but that's not to say there aren't things that we should see here. All of these 
have indications that they are signs given to Moses because they have parallels to common elements of Egyptian religion and life. And so here, God uses three ordinary objects, a stick, a hand, and water. And with them, he does extraordinary things. So let's think about each of them. First, the serpent. The first of God's signs begins in verse two, a serpent from Moses' staff. Look again, verse two. What is that in your hand, he said. A staff, Moses answered, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So this serpent, the image of the serpent, usually a cobra snake, it was very prevalent across Egyptian art. And you see that even today, if you look at Egyptian art, it was on papyrus and walls of of tombs and ancient artifacts. And it was a a symbol uh, that was to represent royalty and divinity. And it was called Uraeus. Now the word Uraeus comes from the Egyptian Ayaret, which means risen one. And this refers to the way that the cobra would rise up, rearing itself back to protect itself. And it symbolized the Pharaoh's role as a lawmaker and a maintainer of order, protecting the Egyptian people from the forces of chaos. It was a symbol of protection. It was thought to to guard against robbers of the royal tombs And, and we are Uh, we see them playing a very important role in the spirit's journey through what they called uh, Duat, which was the underworld of the Egyptian gods. But while the Egyptians had images of serpents and stories about serpents and, and probably even real serpents around, God shows here that he created the serpent and his serpent is far more powerful than their images far greater than the one whom the image represents, who is Pharaoh himself. And so victory over the serpent was a symbolic challenge and an indication that God would overthrow Egyptian religion, Egyptian sovereignty, and by this sign, Egypt's power, whether divine or royal, is shown to be under the Lord's sovereign sway. And so he uses this very common, very simple staff of Moses, a common shepherd's crook. Moses, what do you have there in your hand? You can imagine him look at it like, Lord, it's just a stick. Okay, Moses, take that stick, throw it on the ground, and then it becomes a serpent. I love that Moses wrote about himself here. I ran away. (laughs) And what does God say? I want you to pick up the snake now. And what, it's a stick again. The Lord can do amazing things, even with a stick. But think about how powerful that stick is going to be in the chapters yet to come. It turns into a serpent. It will eat other snakes. It will be lifted up to part the Red Sea. It is going to be used to turn the Nile into blood. It is going to strike a rock and water will gush out. What an amazing stick this is. But you see, the point is not the stick. There's nothing important about the stick itself. The point is that a sovereign power of God is displayed over all creation. And this wasn't just a sign for the elders of Israel. It was even more a sign for Moses himself. Look, Moses, this is what the Lord is showing him. Look, Moses, I can do this with a stick, so what makes you think I can't use you? This stick is going to do wonderful, powerful, amazing things as you follow my lead, so why would you ever think that I can't use an 80-year-old man? that I've chosen to fulfill my purposes. Have you ever heard that saying, God can strike straight blows with a crooked stick? That's exactly what he's going to do with Moses. And here's a sign that he will do so. Now some of you might be here tonight and you're not a Christian and as you think about this, you're thinking, you really have no idea who I am or where I've been 
or what I've done. I would love to know, perhaps, that I'm safe before the Lord, that I'm secure in God. But I have a lot of baggage in my life. I have a lot of skeletons in my closet. I have a lot of problems and trials and temptations. I don't think God could ever really use me for anything overly significant. Do you mean like using a man who killed another man and buried him in the sand and ran away for 40 years and then started an argument with God even after he was told exactly how things would go? Anything like that? God can use a stick. Do you think he can't use you? John Calvin wrote, for although the rod turned into a serpent and could not speak, yet very loudly indeed did it announce that what the Israelites deemed altogether impossible would not be difficult to God. If you think God can't use you, it's important to remember that God will find a way. The signs, again, they are pointing Moses to the truth of what God has already said. I am with you, I will not leave you. And so the stick turning into the serpent gives Moses some assurance of God's presence, but it will also serve to authenticate Moses' ministry. The second thing God does, he tells Moses in verse six about leprosy. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now throughout the Bible, Leprosy can sometimes be used as a more general term for various skin diseases, and it was quite prevalent and considered completely incurable. No doubt, it was very prevalent in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 28, Egypt is actually portrayed as being notoriously unhealthy, even becoming the basis of a threat from God because of disobedience. Deuteronomy 28:60, the text says that God will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they shall cling to you. Imagine being an Egyptian and you are known to be so diseased and vile that God uses that as a threat against other nations. But just like we saw with the serpent and Egypt's power, so too the the contagions of Egypt were also subject to the Lord. God can inflict a contagion, but he can also cleanse it. God can bring a disease, he can also bring healing. Now most of us, at one time or another, we have a false illusion that we have some kind of control over our own destiny. It's what we hear all the time when we're kids. You can be whatever you wanna be. You can do whatever you wanna do. Set your mind to it, you can accomplish it. But we all know that's not really true, don't we? The course of our lives is not in our control. When you were conceived, who your parents are, where you were born, the environment you were raised in, the opportunities you've had, the gifts you've been given, all of this is determined by God, just like any suffering that we will endure in this life. It's a hard reality. That can be a difficult truth to swallow. But were it not so, would we really have any hope at all? If God were not sovereign over our suffering, it's coming and going, would we have any hope at all? Were our suffering as a result of random chance or environmental factors that we think we control, wouldn't we all be miserable people creating a different kind of suffering for ourselves? Think about always meticulously concerned about everything, what we eat, how we sleep, when we exercise, what our carbon footprint is, whether or not we have enough vaccines. Am I using the right shampoo? Did I eat something out of a plastic container instead of glass? Should I be using a gas stove or electric? We can go on and on and on and stress ourselves out. Talk about suffering. Now look, some of these things, they're not, they're not wrong to consider. I definitely do some of them, but, but why do we do it? That's the question. What are our motives? 
It's important to do what we can to be generally healthy and fit and take care of our bodies, but if your motive is to eliminate suffering in your life, to eliminate any and all forms of discomfort that may come your way, do you really believe that God is sovereign? Yes, you are responsible. Yes, you must act wisely. Yes, we have much common grace to help us make good decisions about what we put in and on our bodies and how that will affect us. But let us never forget this truth. If the Lord has determined for his purposes that you will have cancer, you will have cancer. If the Lord has purpose that you will have ALS or heart disease or you will go blind or deaf or have a brain aneurysm or leprosy, it's going to happen. It is only a fool who thinks he can wrestle control away from God. But the text shows us not only that God is sovereign over inflicting the disease, he's likewise sovereign over its healing if he so chooses. This fallen, broken world is filled with suffering and none of us are immune to it. But God has a design. And just as he gives, he can and sometimes does take it away. This would be a lesson for the Egyptians. This God is not impotent. This God is not weak. This God is not abstract. This God cannot be thwarted by sickness and disease. This God is God over all sickness and disease. And Egypt will soon find out. Third thing he points him to in verse nine. He says, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so this third sign, it strikes right at the heart of Egypt's existence. Historians estimate that the Nile River Basin received as much as 30 feet of mud when there was an annual flood, and it resulted in them calling the river the black land in contrast to the desert that surrounded the the river, which was called the red land. And so every year, The Nile waters washed and cleansed and renewed and increased Egypt's uh, soil and they were the reason for Egypt's fertility. It was the basis of their great wealth and power in all the land. The people sang praises to the river continually. They worshiped it. They called it the father of life or the mother of all. The river was considered the physical manifestation of the Egyptian god Hapi, H-A-P-I, not happy, but Hapi the divine spirit that was unceasingly blessed and was unceasingly blessing their lands. So by turning water into blood, what is God doing? He's threatening to destroy the Nile and to destroy the Nile would be to destroy Egypt itself and all of her divine claims. As much as this was a sign, it was also a warning. As I mentioned back in chapter one, Pharaoh is about to enter into the ring in a fight, but he's already lost. Moses would be God's messenger. Moses would deliver the message through signs at first, but the reality of it all would eventually increase. We see signs and wonders all throughout the Bible. And we see different purposes for them as we go along. You think of the New Testament. We see signs and wonders from Jesus in abundance. In like manner, to offer confirmation to the legitimacy of his ministry, to show the power of God, and to be a sign of something greater. The same thing. On the one hand, the signs and wonders of the New Testament are good and powerful. The Gospel of John is arranged around uh, the signs of glory. First the water into wine, and then the feeding of the 5,000, and then the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There are seven of these signs listed in the book of John. And the eighth sign really is Jesus himself raising from the dead. So signs can be, and often are, a good thing in the Bible. They help to authenticate the identity, in this case of Christ, and the ministry of the apostles. But don't forget, miraculous signs are only truly good for those who have eyes to see and hearts to understand and receive. 
Consider the parable Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Remember the poor man Lazarus was in heaven and the rich man who didn't care about Lazarus' life was suffering in hell. And what does the rich man say? Please go and tell my family about this. I always found it interesting. He doesn't say, please get me out of here. Please give me another chance. No, he says, please go tell my family about this. And there's this, then there's this exchange that Jesus tells. He says, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what was Jesus' point? It's an important point, and there are, there are different ways or different versions of how this might play out today. Maybe you've thought or you've heard people say, and they have someone in mind, maybe a certain celebrity or politician or athlete, if only they were saved, people would listen to them and believe. Or if only God would do something miraculous or give them a sign or heal them or appear in their dream, then they would believe. If, if, if he would just raise someone from the dead, people would believe. But what does Jesus say? No. You have Abraham. You have Moses. You have the prophets. You have Jesus. You have the sure and true, infallible, inerrant word of God. There have been plenty of miracles. There have been plenty of signs. There have been plenty of eyewitnesses who have given their accounts. So if you don't believe those, what is one more or five more or a hundred more going to do? There are plenty of signs that tell us to look to Christ. And the most important of them all is the sign of an empty tomb, which Jesus calls the sign of Jonah. You will be in the belly of the earth for three days and then you'll be spit back out. So who will we be? Are we going to be like the elders of Israel or are we going to be like the king of Egypt? The elders heard Moses and listened and said, we believe. To the king of Pharaoh, it wouldn't matter how many signs, it wouldn't matter how many wonders or miracles, it wouldn't matter how many plagues. The issue wasn't evidence, even at the, end of, at the end of it all, we'll see in the plagues. It wasn't that all of a sudden he believed, it's that he didn't want to deal with it anymore. He didn't want his land, his territory, his wealth to be destroyed anymore. He just wanted to, to do away with it. It wasn't that he saw all of this and said, now I will worship this powerful God that has control over me and everything around me. No, he never does that. He doesn't believe. And so the issue wasn't evidence. The issue wasn't a lack of miracles. The issue is his heart. If there was video evidence today of the empty tomb, if the eyewitnesses of the resurrection gave testimony in a courtroom of what they saw, if Jesus himself went on national television and then was raised up to heaven right before the eyes of the world, still the natural man would say in his sinful heart, it's not enough. It's not real, it's not true. In those early days of the church, Jesus appeared to 5,000. There were all sorts of people around who said, I saw him. He passed through a wall. And Thomas still said, I need a little bit more. Let us never think that if we could just see that we would believe. Most of the people who came in contact with Jesus and saw the signs of his power still did not believe. If we cannot be convinced, is it a lack of signs or is it our own unwillingness to believe? Have you really considered that this story is true? Not just Moses, though that is true. It's easy to think, eh, that's an old book. It's a bit too much to believe, but it really happened. And what about the sign of the empty tomb? If you've got other doubts and things that you're not so sure of, maybe you've got 
maybe you've got issues with biblical ethics that you don't agree with, or you know a bunch of Christians that act like hypocrites, and you say, I don't want to be like those people. I don't, I don't like what they stand for. Fine. Instead of making excuses, ask yourself this. A very important question. Did Jesus come back to life? Is that sign true? There were witnesses, it's recorded, there are evidences. Do you believe it? And if you do, it authenticates the apostolic messengers and all that they said. If you do, it authenticates the gospel message. If you do, it authenticates that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And here's the good news for you. If you accept an empty tomb, the good news is that you won't have to work alone or leave this earth alone or go through this life being alone, but you do have to listen and you do have to believe. And friend, if you do not know Christ, every sign has been shown, every miracle has been performed, every evidence has been laid before you in the word of God and the Lord Jesus is calling you to look and see and believe. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so friend, look to Christ and live. You have all the signs you need. We must believe the word of God. And when we do, we see and we know that our God is greater than every other God and man and he has complete control over all creation to include the heart within you. Do you trust him? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray, oh God, we pray and ask that you would help us to believe your word, that we would believe the word of God. We pray, oh Lord, that you would help us to see you far greater than we do, that we would see your power and your glory and your majesty and that we would be like those in the Bible who have seen the risen Christ, who have seen the throne room of the Lamb of God, who have said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May it be, O God, that our posture before you is like that of Isaiah, that at every thought of you, we recognize our own hearts, our own unworthiness, our own rebellion, and yet that we would be reassured by the promises of your word that we're not stuck there because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have believed in the one who left the tomb empty as a sure sign of his triumph over sin and death. Lord, help us to believe. Help those in here who do not believe, Lord, to come to the end of themselves that they might find all of their true hope in this life in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Do it all for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.